We are continuing our I Am series that we started a few weeks ago. I am the bread of life, and we've got a loaf of bread up here. I am the light of the world, and we've got a couple of lights that are on behind me, in addition to the normal lights that we have on in the church. And today, we are talking about in the the 10th chapter of John, when Jesus said, I am the door, and we've got a door up here with us. So we are going to start, I want to look at the 7th verse of the 10th chapter of John, John 10, 7, and I think Ben's going to get it up on the screen for us. And Ben is kind of scrambling because I'm going a couple different places this morning, and I'm in two different versions of the Bible, so he's, uh, he's on his toes back there. Then said Jesus to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And that's almost a, a, a very odd statement to make. I am the door. We hear a lot, I am the bread, and we can, we can understand that, nourishment. I am the light that helps us see. I am the door. And that one's maybe a little, a little less famous, a little less popular. You don't see that on too many Christian greeting cards or T-shirts. I am the door. That doesn't make as much sense. So let me set it up a little bit. Between the, the chapter 9 and chapter 10 in the Gospel of John, there's no break. It is, the, it is the same continuous story. And what Jesus is saying in chapter 10, it's, it's, he's talking to the same people about the same event on the same day. It's the exact same conversation, the same time as chapter 9. So it is just one continuous thing. It's not, it's not even an hour later. And in chapter 9, Jesus healed a blind man, a blind beggar who had been blind since birth. So since birth, this man had no frame of reference being able to see anything. Everything he could picture in his mind, somebody had described to him, and they're describing to him things that he had never seen. So imagine trying to picture what a dog looks like if you've never seen a dog and you've never seen anything. So you have no idea what teeth, you have no idea what fur. When somebody says, well, the dog is, it's, it's shorter than a man. Well, tall, short, those are, are very strange concepts to you because you haven't seen them. So this guy has been blind since birth and Jesus healed him, restored his sight. As you can imagine, that was the biggest thing to happen to that guy all day, all week, all month, forever. That was, that was the thing that that guy was going to talk about. He wasn't going to have some story about what happened that day and then be, oh, oh, and by the way, another thing happened. Some guy healed me and now I can see. The fact that he was healed, that was the big headline of that guy's life, especially that day. And we need to remember, Jesus didn't do miracles in order to show off. He didn't do miracles just to make his life easier or somebody else's life easier. It wasn't like doing a card trick that was going to impress somebody. It wasn't something he did as like a, a stage prop to get somebody's attention. There was a purpose to it. And the purpose, every miracle he did, he was teaching something. He was demonstrating something about the Father when he did that. Now, usually he was teaching his apostles, Somebody else was on the receiving end of the miracle, but the apostles were the ones that were getting the lesson. They were the ones that were seeing this is a godly thing. And he has demonstrated this, not just to restore this guy's sight, but he has demonstrated this. There's a point to this, a godly point. 
So Jesus, and, and this is the story, he healed this guy. And unlike some of his other healings, this was kind of hands-on. He actually picked up some dirt in his hands, spit in it, rubbed it around and kind of made some mud with his saliva in the dirt, and then smeared that on the guy's eyes and said, go wash. And when the guy went and washed this saliva, mud, dirt off of his face, then he could see. And so the, but the main characters in chapter 9, after this healing, are the, the leaders of Israel, the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees. And they spend the majority of the chapter trying to discredit this miracle, this healing that has happened. They accuse the blind guy of, well, you're, you're faking. You can't really see. And then when, when it becomes obvious he can see, then they accuse him, okay, you were never blind. You could see all along. When that doesn't work, they actually they send for his parents, and they have his parents come to vouch for him. They try to get his, his parents to, to, to say that, well, he's been able to see since he was a little kid. They try this gotcha thing with his parents. But his parents show up and they vouch for him, hey, he's been blind since birth. And now apparently he can see. We, kinda, we often read through that story and we miss the fact that when they called his parents in, this guy was seeing his parents for the very first time. I mean, isn't that kind of, you, you talk about a miracle, that's like a miracle inside of a miracle. They question, how did you meet this Jesus fellow that supposedly healed you? And they don't just question how we met Jesus. They question, how did Jesus heal you? When did he heal you? Why did he heal you? Where were you when he healed you? And essentially, what they're doing is, is they formed a conclusion in their mind, and they are, are seeking proof of their conclusion that this is not a godly thing that has happened, and Jesus isn't really a godly person, because this didn't happen in a way that kind of fit their established church rules. See, Jesus healed this guy on the Sabbath. So immediately there was this, this can't really count. This isn't a God thing because it happened on the Sabbath. Like God doesn't move on a certain day of the week. They're thinking, well, this didn't happen in the temple. So obviously it's not a God thing because we all know God only works when you're inside the church on a Sunday morning. At least that's kind of the thinking they're, they're trying to push. And they, what they really did was they revealed to everybody that they were much more interested in the rules of religion than they were in God showing up and giving this guy his sight back. Because I can't imagine anything to be more excited about than standing next to somebody who is seeing things for the very first time. And they're finding a way to miss the point and not be excited about that and focus on all these details. Oh, you can see for the first time, okay, okay, that's nice, but did it happen in the temple? Probably not real. It happened on the Sabbath? No, no, it, it, it can't be real. We're not really sure who this guy is who healed you, so it can't be real. We're not even 100% sure you used to be blind, so it can't really be real. They're working hard to miss the point. In chapter 10, right away when it starts, Jesus is addressing everybody. His apostles are there, the blind guy's there, the Pharisees are there. And he is talking to the crowd that he's letting them know those that approach God without him, without Christ, 
are really false teachers. And verses 1 through 5. Truly I tell you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens it up for them, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice, and they will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. Now, he's not talking about a shepherd getting sheep out of a pen. What he's talking about is he is referring to himself as the shepherd, God as the gatekeeper, and people, all of us, as the sheep. And he's saying God is going to let somebody in, and people will follow, and by follow he means hear. When he talks about hearing the voice, he's talking about hearing truth. God's going to let somebody in, and if they're coming in through the gate, through the door, if they're coming in through me, the people are going to hear truth. But if they're climbing over the side, if they're coming in through the window, if they're not coming in through the door, they're not coming in through me, and the people aren't hearing truth. He's letting this assembled crowd know that these Pharisees that are more focused on rules than on God, you're not hearing truth out of them because they're not going through the door. They're coming in over the wall. They're coming in another way. When he talks about the sheep not following anybody but him, he's talking about people aren't going to hear the truth if it's not me. That's why it is so important that you spend time in the word of the Lord on your own, not just here on a Sunday morning when the preacher opens up the Bible, not just on a Sunday morning when we see the words up on the screen, but that's why it's important that you look into the Bible on your own so that you can learn to tell the voice of truth from the voice of not truth. Because our culture is filled with people who can't wait to tell you exactly how it is. Even when they're telling you exactly how it isn't, they're, they're busy explaining to you that that's how it is or that's how they want it to be. And if you are not familiar with truth, then you can't tell if that voice is telling you the truth or not. You are one of those sheep, and you don't know which shepherd belongs to you, so you don't recognize the voice, and you don't know what you're following. And Jesus is saying, if it's not through me, it's not truth. He is promising to give only truth. Now, John chapter 10, verse 6, has maybe my favorite verse of the morning. Because... This crowd that had assembled, his apostles, the Pharisees, the blind guy, they listened to this about the sheep and the sheep pen and the sheep gate and the shepherd and the gatekeeper. And collectively, they all kind of looked at Jesus, giving him this look that said they had no idea what he was talking about. And verse 6, Jesus gave them this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Every preacher I know can relate to this verse. Because God's stuff is hard to understand, isn't it? I mean, have you ever opened your Bible and read something and thought, I'm really trying to understand this, and I'm just, I'm just not getting it. It doesn't make sense. Have you ever felt that way? I feel that way all the time. It takes me right back to, to sitting in class in high school, and I didn't understand what was going on. 
Jesus felt this, this frustration because he had explained this and they didn't quite get it. And that's a frustration, like I said, every pastor feels that. Every teacher feels that. Sometimes students don't get it. Parents feel that because often children don't get it. Bosses feel that because they've, they've got this mission they want their employees to carry out. And the employees, sometimes they mess it up. They just don't get it. We all feel that when we try to explain something and the people that it's really clear in our head and then we're, we're trying to put it into words and the people we're explaining it to are looking at us like we're speaking a foreign language. They just don't get it. And that's how this crowd was with Jesus. So Jesus took, took another swing at it. He went in to explain it again using the same words in just about the same way, but trying to explain it again. Now, I want to ask you, because he's talking about a door, how important are doorways in your life? How many doors do you go through in a day? I counted yesterday. I tried to figure out how many doors I was going to go through today. So I sat down on Saturday, so how many doors will I go through on Sunday? I came up with 11 doors I would interact with before I even got to the church. That was more than I thought. But see, we, we, don't have a, we don't have a bathroom in our bedroom. We sleep in the smallest bedroom of our three-bedroom house. The master bedroom that has a bathroom off of it, we use that as a home office because we don't have children. It's just the two of us. And so I, first thing in the morning when I get up, I go through my bedroom door and then across the hall through the bedroom door of the master bedroom, through the, the door to the bathroom, there's a refrigerator door that I'm going to interact with. There's a shower door that I'm going to interact with. There's a front door of the house to go out to walk the dog before you go to church. That way you don't have to clean the carpet when you do get home from church. Once, once I'm ready to leave, after I've been in and out of my closet door so I could get dressed, once I'm ready to leave, I've got to go through the doorway into the laundry room, which leads to the doorway to the garage, so I can interact with the car door and then drive the garage door up so I can drive the car out of the garage. It's really important to put the door up before you do that. That's 11 different doors that I have interacted with, and I'm, I'm still sitting in the driveway of my house. So doorways... And doors play a, play a pretty big role. A door is a hinged or otherwise movable barrier that allows somebody to get in and out of an enclosure. So a door is something that moves to allow you to get in and out of something. A closet, a refrigerator, a room, a house, a building. So a door is, is pretty important. So Jesus takes another swing at explaining this in verse 7. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. In some translations, he says, I am the door for the sheep. I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and out and go find pasture. A thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they might have life and have it in abundance. Truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. And what he's talking about is all the sheep, all the people. Doesn't matter if you're a good person or a bad person. Doesn't matter if you're an old person or a young person. Doesn't matter if you have any fashion sense or not. Doesn't matter if you are black or white. Doesn't matter where you went to school and how long you went to school. 
doesn't matter how much you slept in school or how much you paid attention, doesn't matter if you're male or female, doesn't matter all these details that define us, they don't matter when Jesus says, I am the door for the sheep. I am the door for everybody. Doesn't matter how anybody defines himself, I am the door for them. Every person that you have ever met, seen, or heard about is somebody that Jesus hung on the cross for. Even, even the ones that, that we disagree with politically. Even those people that when you're driving down the road, they pull right in front of you so they can go nine miles an hour slower than you were going. Even those people he hung on the cross for. Those people that are in front of you in line at the store and they wait until the total is rung up to start digging around looking to see if they brought any money with them. He hung on the cross for those people too. The ones that make you late for work. He hung on the cross for everybody. Everybody you're ever going to meet or see or hear about is someone Jesus hung on the cross for. And he hung on the cross to offer salvation to all of them, regardless of their background or where they've been or what they've done. Everybody can accept salvation. When Jesus hung on the cross dying, he said to the thief that was hanging on the cross next to him, who didn't just leave church, who wasn't enrolled in a growth group, who wasn't volunteering with his children's ministry, who wasn't doing good work in the community, he said to that thief, today you are going to be with me in paradise. Because that thief believed that Jesus was the Son of God being crucified for his sins. That is all it takes. All that other stuff ceases to matter in that equation. I am the door for everybody. In verse 8, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, and the sheep didn't listen to them. Anybody who is preaching salvation, anybody who is talking about godly gain, whether they're talking about gaining wealth and influence, or whether they're talking about gaining friends, or whether they're even talking about gaining godly things, anybody that's talking about any sort of godly gain or about salvation, if they're not mentioning Jesus and they're not preaching Jesus Christ, they're just making noise. They're a thief and a robber. That's what Jesus called them. That's not what I'm calling them. That's what Jesus called them. If they're not using him, they're a thief and a robber. They're stealing your time. They're stealing opportunity you have to be hearing the truth somewhere else. They might even be, if you fall under their influence and believe them, they might even be stealing your opportunity to hear the gospel and get saved. So I think calling them a thief is an accurate description. It's a harsh word to use. I mean, nobody in here wants to be accused of being a thief, right? That's a pretty... It's a pretty big deal. But he's using this harsh language to describe somebody who's doing something harsh because if you are keeping somebody from God, that's probably about the most harsh thing you could do, right? So the sheep, they don't listen to them. Simply translated, that means the sheep don't hear the truth. All who came before me, all who speak and preach without me are thieves and robbers, and the sheep aren't hearing the truth. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will come in and go out and find pasture. Now, this in and out, he's not referring to salvation. Salvation doesn't turn on and turn off. You don't get saved when you respond to the gospel and then get unsaved the next time you mess up. 
we all should have said amen to that. Because that's like a big amen thing. We can't get unsaved when we mess up. I, got, I gave my life to the Lord August 15th, 1992, and it was, it was shortly after midnight. It was about 12.45 a.m. There were 23 hours and 15 minutes left in the day when I got saved, and if it was possible to get unsaved, I promise you, August 15th, 1992, I would have been saved and unsaved in the same day. Maybe even a couple of times. I've had days I'd have been saved and unsaved 20, 25 times back and forth. I have been, I looked this up on Google, I don't know this off the top of my head, but I have been saved as of today for 10,179 days, and that means I could have been unsaved at least 10,179 times. And as I said, some of those days, it's more than once. There might have been one day in there I didn't do anything worth getting unsaved for but some of the other days would have more than made up for that we don't get saved and unsaved so when he says in and out he's not talking about that he's not talking about into into my favor and you've entered into this this salvation relationship and then oh well you messed up now you're out of it and try again he's not talking about that in and out he's not talking about visiting heaven he's talking about going in entering into this relationship and getting saved and then now that you have clocked in, you're on the clock, and now you go out and you get to work. And I have talked before how we tend sometimes as, as Christians and, and preachers fall into this a lot, and Lord, forgive me because I have fallen into it. We treat salvation like it's some kind of a finish line. And oh, they came forward and they got saved, and hallelujah and amen, and we ought to say hallelujah and amen. When somebody gets saved, we ought to be singing and dancing and clapping and having a party. But we treat that like, all right, now they're saved, and I'm going to go look for somebody else, and I'm just going to let them, let them just be right where they are. That's not the finish line. You are now lined up. You're now on the clock. You are now no longer a spectator at this Christian thing. You have now come down out of the stands, and you're on the field. In just a second, somebody's going to throw you the ball, and you better start running. It's not a spectator sport. So when he says in and out, he means in you get saved and out. Now you're on the field, and you better be ready to do some work. You better be ready. That's one of the reasons that, that he's showing these miracles to the apostles, because they don't really understand it yet, but he's saying to them, hey, you, you're, you're coming in right now. But before too long, I'm going to die on the cross. And you young men are about to go out. And you better be ready to go and to work. Because when I die on the cross, I'm finished. You're not. Your ministry starts. He uses this analogy, the door. I absolutely love this. A door has to be bigger than you for you to go through it. Right? There's no way we have, the previous owners of our house have a, 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 had a, a little doggy door carved, and we've never really used it. It's been, it's been nailed shut, but we've got this little doggy door in the corner of our back door, and there is absolutely no way, even if it wasn't nailed shut, that I'm going to fit through that doggy door. There is no way. You cannot bring your car into the sanctuary through that door. Not without ruining that door and ruining your car. 
the door has to be bigger than you for you to fit through it. Jesus has to be bigger than you for you to get saved and then get out there and make an impact for him. My little illustration for that, I have got my, my little Jesus with me. And isn't this too often the way that we treat the Savior? We come to him and we get saved and we get so excited and I've got Jesus and I'm, I'm controlling him and I'm using him. Hey, Jesus, I got a math test. Will you help me out? Hey, Jesus, uh, I was going uh, 10 miles an hour over the speed limit and the cop has pulled me over and I, I, I would really like a warning instead of a ticket. We ask him for help when we need it. Hey, Jesus, I really want to watch this movie and it's probably not going to glorify you and it's not going to lift me up. And uh, hey, Jesus, maybe I'm just going to put you back in my pocket so you don't see what I'm doing. I'm going to go and I'm going to hang out with some people that, that they're not all about you and they're not good for me. And uh, Jesus, I'm just, going to, I'm just going to leave you here on the coffee table and you guard the house and I'll be back later. We want to have Jesus be smaller than us so that we can kind of turn him on and off. We don't want him to always be bigger than us because if he's bigger than us, then we can't leave him behind. A door has to be bigger than you. Your faith cannot be just a spectator sport. Remember the blind man and he spit in the mud and he rubbed his saliva and his spit in the dirt all over the guy? And that seems very complicated to me. The first time I heard that story when I was a kid, I just thought, you know, Jesus could have healed the guy just by touching him. Just by looking at him, speaking to him. He could have just, he didn't even have to look at the guy. He could have just walked past him and thought, Father, heal the guy. And the guy would have been healed. Why did he do this complicated, gross thing with the spit? Because he wanted to demonstrate that sometimes if you want to have an interaction with God, it can't be a spectator sport. It's not the movies where you buy your ticket and you get your popcorn and you get your milk duds and you get your, your peanut butter chocolate and you get all your M&Ms and then you buy a Diet Coke and you go and you sit in the chair and you watch it. It is you climbing down into the field and interacting with him. Remember last week when Pastor Steve talked about how, excited, how exciting Christianity was when you were first saved? That's because when you were saved, you did something. You raised your hand or you stepped out of your pew or you stepped out of your chair and you went forward and maybe you went forward and got on your knees and you interacted with somebody, a preacher or a deacon or, or somebody. They put their arms around you. You put your arms around them and you prayed together. You might even had some tears and you had an emotional experience. You were drawing attention to yourself, but in a very humble way. You weren't saying, hey, everybody look at me. I'm not saved. I'm going to hell. No, you were drawing attention to yourself in a humble way. You were standing up and doing this incredibly brave thing or you were raising your hand in a service and you're saying, hey, everybody look at me. I don't know Jesus and I'm going to hell. Can you help me, Jesus? You're interacting with him in a humble way. What if the lesson here is that God shows up when we act out our faith with humility? What is the thing in your life that you need Jesus to spit on and put some mud on? Are you taking that before him with any sort of humility? On Sunday morning, you're writing it down in your connection card. You'll pray for me. My family needs a financial miracle. 
but are you having any sort of humility in that prayer request? When you talk to an unsaved coworker, are you saying, I really need a financial miracle, and I'm praying about it, and I'm asking God to help me, and it's really kind of weird because it's hard to pray and ask God for stuff because I'm a mess and I'm a sinner and I keep screwing up and I'm a born-again Christian and I'm going to heaven, but in the meantime, I keep fumbling the ball. And it's hard to ask for stuff when I'm making mistakes. Are you, with humility, are you acting like that with a coworker, Or do you just pretend, I'm a Christian and I got Jesus and he's in my pocket and it's great? Or do you have any humility with your faith? Are you practicing your faith, reading your Bible, trying to memorize some scripture, trying to understand some scripture? Are you working as a Christian? Are you giving your service to the Lord? Are you trying to learn? Are you out on the field? Jesus changed the lives of so many people on this planet through his apostles. They were tax collectors. They were fishermen. And he changed the world using them because he explained to them that he was bigger than all of that, bigger than this little Jesus. He was the door, access to God, that anybody could fit through, but he was the only way. It wasn't one of the ways. He was the only way. I am the gate. If anybody enters by me, he will be saved and he will come in and out and he will find pasture. What's a pasture? Pasture is a place where animals eat, right? Plenty for them to eat, plenty for them to drink, plenty of access to sunlight. He will find pasture. Not he's going to find wealth. Brother Sam's leading a growth group. Are you, you getting rich with that growth group? Saving up money, Christmas in Hawaii? Yeah, he's not getting rich leading that growth group. When you do Christian service, Brother Charles makes a, a run almost every week for lamb, for the food pantry. Are you getting rich doing that? Are you wealthy? You're going to retire as a, as a billionaire off of what Lamb's giving you to help them out? He just loves doing it. That's good because loving doing it is what he gets out of it. Are you interacting with your faith in a humble way? Or are you expecting that that pasture is going to be something great for you? Or is that pasture a chance for God to touch your life because you are living your life for him. A thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. This goes back to the pasture thing he said in the verse before. How can you have salvation and have it in abundance? When he says abundance, he's not promising you that your wallet's going to be overflowing. He's not promising you that everything you want, you're going to get. He's not promising you, hey, quit your job, put your feet up, you're on easy street now. He is saying, "How come to me and you will have life and have it in abundance. You will have assurance of salvation and have it in abundance. Well, what does that mean? I can only get saved once. How much salvation do I need? I mean, personally, I need a lot, but how much salvation can one person use? What he's saying is you are going to have so much life, so much salvation with God, so much access to that that it is going to be overflowing. It is going to be overflowing in your life. What happens when something overflows? We had some water overflow here several months ago. What happened? It ended up costing us some money. What happens when something overflows? 
spills out, right? What happens if you get to the point where you recognize the only way you're going to get to heaven is through that door of Jesus? You can't get to him any other way. And you recognize that that door is bigger than you. And you recognize that it's not a spectator sport and you are supposed to be out there doing it. And you get out there and you get doing it. And just like Charles says, he loves doing it and it feeds him. Brother Sam loves ministry and it feeds him, which is good because neither one of those guys is getting rich. Not doing ministry. Maybe they got something going on the side that's, that's making them a lot of money. I haven't looked. Maybe, maybe Brother Sam's new Cadillac is out front. I'm not sure. But you get to the point where God's love is filling you up and it's overflowing. And what happens when something overflows? It starts to spill out. And when it starts to spill out, you are going to be like that blind guy. And the headline is that now I can see. Your headline is going to be, Jesus has changed my life so much that I can't shut up and I can't stop talking about it. And I'm going to share it with everyone because I want you to feel what I feel in my heart for Jesus. I am the door. I am bigger than you. I am the way that you come in and get saved and then go out because now you're on the clock. You don't get to come in and sit down and put your feet up. Not yet. I am the door. Do you believe that? Are you interacting with him as if that is true?